Welcome to the Basin Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And we have with us Brooke from Vibecam. Hi there. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. When I said Brooke from Vibecamp, I think I was drastically underselling that. You are the entire motivating force behind this whole thing for two years now. Yes? I wouldn't. I, well, okay, this is a, this is a <laughs> bit of a tricky thing. I am uh, currently doing a lot of processing around that. I don't want to, um, you know, overlook the the contributions my team has made. I have some people who have been with me from the very beginning and are, are a core part of making this what it's become. I think I'm just the loudest. <laughs> All right, fair <laughs> enough. And staffers are insanely important, but it was it was kind of your baby from the start, right? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to explain to Stephen what VibeCamp is, and actually to a number of people who have asked me, a lot of people want to know. It's like this cool thing, but like, what is it exactly? And I wasn't sure exactly where to start with. Is is what is Teapot a good place to begin? Uh, uh, it'd be quite possibly, although uh, that's that's. Uh, even more controversial than than like what is five cam <laughs> I would say. Um, I, I think the teapot is kind of like a um, it's, it's short for this part of Twitter. It is sort of the latest in a series of monikers referring to I, I don't know maybe just different like evolutionary steps in a scene on Twitter. Uh, it's been was in group and then post rat Twitter and I think teapot is is the latest iteration. There are some issues with it along the lines of people reifying it, people thinking that it means one thing or one specific group of people when really it's everyone kind of has their own part of Twitter and that can get confusing and lead to miscommunications. How would you feel about that that response? I'm fairly new to Teapot. My experience with Twitter was I heard I should stay away from it. I went there a few times and I was like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of people yelling at each other and I shouldn't do that. <laughs> it wasn't until I heard about VibeCamp 1 and realized that there's like smaller communities on Twitter of people who all kind of follow each other and that there was a rationalist, post-rationalist area that did all that. <laughs> and I was like, is this a thing? And it actually is. It's a very fun, nice way to experience Twitter if you contain it in a little bubble like that. Yeah, actually, for a while, I was having trouble with the idea of, of having found myself in a bubble, because I think there's sort of this idea that it's it's limiting, you shouldn't just be exposed to a bubble. But every time I've tried to leave the bubble, um, it doesn't <laughs> go very well. I actually really like my bubble. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of like not having bubbles in real life if you can avoid it. But online spaces get so shitty uh, so quickly. I was on Twitter. When did it come out? Like 2010? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Around then. Because I remember I was on for the summer of 2012. And that was like it. I realized quickly that this wasn't for me. I was on for, I got on because it was like, oh, people are coordinating like conference stuff around being able to talk on this platform. Let's try that. And then I couldn't, I couldn't stay on it and enjoy it. I think that if you curate your audience or what do you call it? Your follow, followership, follow. Your follows probably. Yeah, I guess. But that's, there should be a better word for it. If you curate your follows and like just get the news that you just want to get, you don't see the dog piles. You don't see the. This week, this insane shit happened. If you don't want to hear about that insane shit, right? Yeah. It's like I was on Reddit for a few years, and mainly it was 30 cat subreddits. <laughs> so. Nice. Brooke, you said there's some controversy about who's part of Teapot or not. Like, to me, it feels like if you know enough people that are in it and doing it, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of in this part of Twitter. That's That's kind of neat. I would say the controversy is more about whether or not it should have a name, whether the name should be Teapot uh, because this part of Twitter makes it sound like there is a singular teapot. Mm. 
when it's it's really grown. Uh, I think initially it was it was almost a, a friend group that was using it, and now it's it's a whole bunch of different scenes and sub scenes and things like that that have sort of adopted it. And I, I did try to stop using it in my tweets for a while. There, I was trying to, to stop contributing to popularizing it, but I th- I feel like this is a tide that no one person can really stop at this point. I first heard the phrase teapot like last week when. You know, I was just talking about Vibe Camp. I assumed that everybody who had a fandom or a, a niche that they all were called Teapot. Is that not the case? I haven't seen it used anywhere else. Originally, oh. we were using Teacot, which was short for this corner of Twitter. Most often when people would kind of like refer to th- that bubble or these bubbles, uh, they would like write out and here at this corner of Twitter in their tweets. And so, uh, so, so it shortened it to Teacot. And then that one we did look up and it was also top conservatives on Twitter, which led to some confusion. <laughs> That was part of like why people kind of sort of like retroactively change it to this part of Twitter, which is, you know, teapot is much cuter. Yeah, it has the the benefit of when you say it, people think you're using the word teapot. So mm-hmm. I think it's great. If you guys are the only ones using it, I say brand that shit. But you know, <laughs> I don't know anything about, about what's going on. So maybe that's not the move you want to make. What makes for a scene or a sub scene on Twitter? It's interesting. Um, I don't know if I have a singular answer to that. A lot of the stuff is just, um, I think one of the the values, I don't know if it even would be called a value, but uh, illegibility is like really important to a lot of people that I know on Twitter. And that's reflected in, in some very interesting ways. So uh, I, I don't have like clear answers to a lot of the questions that come up around these things. But okay. it feels almost like there are existing groups of people who have shared interests, and then also friend groups that are all kind of like co-mingling. I think that there were people like Goblin Odds who were very involved in, in the rationality scene who were on Twitter for ages and ages. Then a bunch more people kind of joined the scene. I think there's a lot of neurodiversity and people who tend to think in similar ways uh, who get drawn to that sort of, you know, a lot of like rationality adjacent people. You know, I, I don't consider myself to mm-hmm. be a rat, but I, I, I have always gotten along really well with rats. I think we just have similar sort of brains. And then as people started meeting each other in real life more, some of the existing friend groups grew and I don't know if that was an answer at all but it seems like a combination of like interests such as rationality or like particular writers but then also just like actual just friend groups I thought it was a great answer and it led me to this next question comment whatever you mentioned that illegibility is very important I find that fascinating because I've been trying to figure out what the difference between a rat and a post rat is and maybe we can (laughs) loop back to that later but I think one of the big ones is that rats really value legibility and I think post rats value illegibility for interesting reasons. I want to ask them about the reasons for valuing that specifically, because I kind of see it, but the nature of illegibility itself makes it kind of hard to see. Being inscrutable makes it more insular group that like you get to say you're not part of it. And I can't explain to you why I'm guessing. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I think different people would also have different answers to that too. I think there are some people who have maybe more unorthodox political beliefs uh, it feels safer to them to be illegible about it. And then I also just think that for me personally, I care a lot about just who people are as humans and keeping some, you know, there's kind of like the, a, a frequent, actually, I haven't heard people talk about it in a while, but people used to talk a lot about how you shouldn't have, you know, don't post object level takes, stay on the meta level. And I think, you know, that can get tiresome after a while, but I think there's something to that. And when you can just appreciate somebody for like the way they think about things instead of like what they think about things. Yeah, I think, Part of appreciating people makes illegibility, God, I'm going to have a problem with that word, important because I try to make myself extremely legible as much as I can. 
And it turns out that I change over time and sometimes even <laughs> in the course of days. And so I'm like, hey, I'm, I was being very legible, but that's actually turns out it's not me today. And this feels like an issue. I feel like I'm living a contradiction sometimes. So I can kind of see why legibility is popular, but also I don't like that. I feel like I should be legible and consistent. Yeah, for me personally, I and you know, I can't I can't claim that this is the case for anybody else. But for me personally, I, I, there are some things that I think are really important to be legible about. Um, and then some things that that I, I do appreciate eligibility for and specifically in the context of vibe camp, I think that some of our eligibility has been downstream of the fact that, that it's evolving and it's changing. And what it is is kind of emerging over time. Ooh, I like that a lot. This might be a good time to jump into what is vibe camps, because I heard about it. I don't know, in passing three, four weeks ago when Inuyasha said, I'm going to Vibe Camp. And I don't think I got a chance to ask him what that was at the time. Some people listening might not have heard of it or might not know what it is. You're probably the best person to ask for like what the elevator pitch is for it and the high level view and then we can get as deep as you want into anything. Well, I'd be curious to hear, um, Inyash, is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> yes. <seen> it written. <laughs> I, I'd be curious <laughs> to hear your interpretation of that before I try to give mine. Oh, wow. <laughs> if I, I were to... <laughs> I could give you time to think while I give you my like totally far outside perspective understanding. I have a two-sentence summary that I have in my head, but Stephen, I want to hear what your outside view is. It's a group of people on Twitter, rationalist, post-rationalist, doing a successful version of what that Tumblr meetup was. I think it's been called FlashCon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad you got the joke. So we had had an in-person meetup at the beginning of the month, and one of the attendees of our meetup was going to Vibe Camp. And I asked him, I was like, what is it like that that Tumblr meetup? And he had no idea what I was talking about. And I was like, with the one with the ball pit. And still just (laughs) blank eyes from everybody in the room. So So I... I only no know ball. about DashCon because we got a lot of DashCon and Firefest jokes in the lead up to the first <laughs> Vibe Camp because we were just totally unknown, like a bunch of randos who were like, we're going to do this thing. And I actually wanted to have a ball pit out in front where people like first <laughs> checked in, but it kind of fell by the wayside. Ball pit for Vibe Camp 3. Yes. <laughs> My quick summary, the way I think of it anyway, is I think of it as Burning Man for rationalists and post-rationalists, except without the environmental suffering. <laughs> I <laughs> I absolutely love it for that reason. But also I realize that people who don't have a history with Burning Man or burners will not understand what exactly that means. So a large festival gathering where people can all go just to be together and be around each other and experience life and do fun things together and in the evenings dance, maybe take drugs during the day or if they want to, and just have a have a reconnecting with other humans and with the world around them without any internet bugging you and without the stresses of real modern life bugging you. Um, and it's it's really beautiful in my opinion. I love these things. One of my friends likes to joke uh, when I, when he's like introducing me to people at parties, he'll say that that I'm running Vibe Camp and it's Burning Man for autists. Yes, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. But you have to be careful what context you say that in because there are a number, like probably a like a statistically significant number of people who go to Vibe Camp who are diagnosed, uh, albeit like rather high functioning. But if you say that in the wrong crowd, I, I had one lady one time be like, "Oh, that's so sweet of you." Like I was. Oh. <laughs> like charity work right like like the severe yeah it's like autist in like the internet sense which is a little bit different (laughs) yeah (laughs) if you squint it's charity work you know you're getting a little people out out to socialize once a year (laughs) i mean seriously yes (laughs) so how would you define vibe camp 
Yeah, it really has been changing. Initially, I just wanted to hang out with my Twitter friends. It was inefficient for me to be just going to New York and meeting like 15 people at a time when I hosted meetups. I, I wanted to meet more of them. And so uh, it just, yeah, it just seemed more efficient for me to tell them all to come to me. But it turned out that I had a lot of Twitter friends and those people had a lot of Twitter friends and everybody actually really wanted to meet their Twitter friends. But I think that's changing a little bit. It's starting to feel more in the direction of, of you know, I, I said this uh, the other day on in a debrief I did with Richard Bartlett. When I first joined Twitter, I remember having a moment where I looked around and was like, oh, are, are we all like that one weird kid from our hometowns who just kind of like mm. happened to find each other online? And I, I'm beginning a sense that that's maybe in the direction of what Vibe Camp is growing into becoming kind of like a place to meet, to find the others of a, of a particular kind of, uh, of others who have maybe felt like outcasts or had trouble in particular ways with, with their social lives and um, institutions around them. I had heard something about how the invitee list was somewhat, I don't know, curtailed or had some requirements. Like you had to already be following the right people on Twitter or something. No. What's, what's the... <laughs> we, we had like public applications. We ended up doing... Uh, so just to get in the weeds a little bit, there was a little bit of a split on my team before this last one. Uh, some of us wanted curation. We wanted something like referral links or maybe a, a mix of that in applications. And some people just wanted VibeCamp to stay like as inclusive as possible and as public as possible. So we ended up doing what we called chaos mode for ticketing, where the first... Uh, we started ticket sales like really early, which led to... Uh, some surprising problems down the line, but first was first come first serve. We just accepted anybody who put in the application and then it was a lottery. And then we just did open applications for the last chunk. And by the time we got to the open applications, we kind of realized we didn't have clear metrics to use. It was really hard to identify. Um, you know, we had one resale that happened towards the end or tried to happen where we took a look in the, at the person's Twitter account who was trying to buy a ticket and it was blatantly racist and anti-trans stuff. So we, we denied that mm-hmm. one. But a lot of a lot of it was like we just couldn't tell much information from their Twitter accounts or from their applications. So we ended up we, we had a very small blacklist, like less than five people that had been like floated to us as, as safety concerns. And we'd investigated and decided as a team were we're not welcome. But other than that, we let basically anybody who wanted to come enough to fill out our application. I like that. I like the approach to moderation that way. It's not saying you have to you jump through all these hoops to join. It's like you just have to cross this really low bar, which is don't, don't I, be so loud of an asshole that we can tell from 500 miles away. Yeah, I do feel like some of the, you know, some I, you guys may have seen on Twitter, the lemur discourse and, and memes that happen afterwards. Um, I was going to ask like, you about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like some of that was probably downstream of the way that we did ticketing. I think that if we had done like 80% referral links and like 20% applications, so we are still like reaching people from outside of direct networks, social networks, but like not not just letting in anybody who wants to come. I feel like, you know, having some amount of people who aren't connected is really, really good and is exactly the thing we want. But I think if the numbers are too high, that's when you start getting like those kinds of issues. But I, I'm not sure. From what I gathered from the first Vibe Camp, it was very much you wanted to get all the people that you knew on Twitter and all their people together in a room and just hang out. This Vibe Camp was much more of a official organized thing. Is that true? And do you feel like this is the first Vibe Camp Vibe Camp? What, what are your feelings about the difference between Vibe Camp 1 and 2? In a lot of ways, this one felt like our first event, at least to me. There were challenges that weren't even on our radar with the first one, having to do with a lot of different aspects. And... Yeah, I mean, they were they were very different in a lot of ways. 
Just on a personal level, which one do you feel like you enjoyed and preferred more? I know there's a lot to be said for providing an awesome event of meaning to many people, but are they comparable? One of the things that made me really happy after the first one was we were told by the site, uh, we went to a children's summer camp during their off season, and we were told that we were not only their largest adult retreat ever, we were their most respectful. And I didn't see that from this event. I, I saw a lot more instances of people like leaving trash around or acting in a way that you would expect sort of more typical like festival goers to act. And I, and I really liked that about the first one, but I also feel like we can stay larger than the first one and maintain those vibes with a little bit more cultivation. But again, this is just personal opinion. We we have not kind of like figured out how we're going to change how we do ticketing or anything like that as a team. This is not a decision I would make my, by, by myself. You said there were surprising problems from early ticketing. What kind of surprising problems? For one thing, a lot of people bought tickets and then realized they before they knew what their schedule was going to be like, and then it turned out they had a wedding to go to or things like that. Also, I think it just gave people more time to change their minds. The first one, we actually did a lot of the ticketing through my personal Twitter DMs, which was a nightmare. This one, we had ticketing mostly automated, but our resales were very manual. It took a lot of like, uh, not a lot, but like at the scale that it was at, like it was really time consuming, a lot of work for my team for to the resales. So I think we would have had less of that had we not started ticket sales as early as we did. I think those are all fairly solvable. I think having something like a a cancellation fee and then a waiting list on our end would reduce a lot of that. I don't know if these are boring questions for listeners, but stuff I'm curious about. So I'll just ask, I mean, how much do tickets cost? How many attendees do you have? How many applications do you receive? Kind of just like the logistics. And how big is your team? You keep mentioning. The core org team right now is six people total. We have one person who's who's working for us now. If you include him, at seven. We had another person who was like kind of almost working for us, but wasn't getting paid, but did a lot of work as like in this weird unofficial official sort of relationship. Nobody did the badges and he built an app. Um, but that's kind of like a one of those relationships that that contracting. It, well, it wasn't contracting. He didn't. He, he wanted to be uh, fully independent from the team, but then he was also doing things that were kind of like part of official vibe camp things. I think that's the kind of relationship that just barely worked for this one, and will need to become more formalized in future ones. Prices were it was for twenty sixty nine because we are from the internet. <laughs> All right. For, <laughs> for the general admission tickets, which was like you could sleep in a tent, you could get sleep in a hammock, you could sleep in your car, you can get an Airbnb, whatever. That was like access to the event. And then the the cabin tickets were like five ninety, and this was for four days, three nights, and included food. Wow! So five ninety included the food and the cabin and stuff. Uh huh. Wow, that sounds like a steal. What was Burning Man again, Inyash? like a thousand dollars and you get to, you get to sleep you... on the floor of the desert if you want so yes that's just to get in yeah well it sounds like vibe camp's a better deal what kind of turnouts did you guys get i think this one we just sent out the exit survey today to everyone who checked in and that was about 600 people so we have some figuring out to do i think the total number was more like 700 but we're trying to figure out people just didn't get checked in properly or like what happened with that and we sold 800 tickets but that was including around 100 that were part of our financial aid system, either got full or partial cops. Nice. That's awesome. That This is huge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not Burning Man big, but this is two years you know, into it, and this is a small team effort. This That's outstanding. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we, we rolled the dice a little bit with this one. We're just like, fuck it, let's try. <laughs> Are you pleased with the ratio of staffers to people who showed up and the size of the camp? Uh, no, we needed, we needed way more staff. My volunteers were overworked. And also, there are only three of us working foolish time in the lead up to Vibe Camp who were actually getting paid. Everybody else is just doing this as a passion project. And we have 
like we're like profitable, but there's a lot that needs to be done to figure out like how to compensate people fairly uh, without like charging too much for tickets. I really want to explore alternative methods of, of getting revenue because I don't think you can ever really make that much from events without like gouging people. Uh, I've been thinking about because we have access to like a like an insanely talented network of people. Like if we maybe started doing some kind of like recruitment for jobs, there would be a learning curve, but we could manage it because we have access to the right kind of people. And I think that could be, I think it's fairly standard is like 10% of the total salary. If you connect somebody with a job and they stay, and if you get somebody like a 400K a year job, then that's 40K, which is like almost nice. yearly salary right now. So yeah. things like that would help a lot. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. So I just want to, I want to think outside the box a little bit and figure out what we can do. There's, I think there's a lot of options. We've got, I think some of the most clever people in the world who are involved in these scenes and, and want to help us succeed. So I think with a little thinking brainstorming, we can figure things out. More of a personal question here. How did you feel at Vibe Camp? I assume it's a huge amount of work. Did you feel that you got enough back while you were there out of fun and enjoyment and love and appreciation from people around you. How was your vibe? I, you know, I'm still kind of processing, I think, along with a lot of people. I do feel like I have come out of Vibe Camp a little bit different than I went in, which is maybe not how I felt after the first one. Um, mm. I feel like I'm stepping into my own power a little bit in a way, just like a sense of like solidity and, and confidence that I had before, but not to this degree. During the event itself, I had a rough time Thursday night and Friday up until the evening. There was a thing that happened Thursday night that I am absolutely not going to talk about publicly that I, I got very upset about. I had been pulling very, very long days up to then. I hadn't really had time to like stop and think about things. And, and I recognized that I was more emotionally volatile than I would have been had I been able to take rest. Uh, so I went to bed earlier than I'd intended to that night. And then the next day, it was just one fire after another. And all I was seeing were the people who were having a bad time or were sick or, or uh, you know, whatever. And then I was doing, occasionally checking Twitter and all I was seeing were some like very mixed reviews. My It was very like limited scope of what was happening. And finally, Friday night, a friend of mine dragged me out and I went by uh, Booty's dance set and, and people were just having a great time there. And a lot of people came up to me and like thanked me. That that really turned things around for me because I, I, I had been the only people who had reason to seek me out were the people who were having problems. So that was kind of all I was seeing for a while there. Um, and from uh, from Friday night on, I was I was having a much better time. Well, I'm glad it turned around. What was the event duration? So I actually got on site Tuesday morning with a small group of people to begin with, with set up. And then we had more people come in Wednesday. The event itself, check-in started Thursday at noon, and then check-out was uh, Sunday at 3 p.m. Right on. I'm glad that it sounds like overall it, it went well. And I haven't coordinated anything major, you know, small meetups and stuff locally that I basically have no hand in coordinating anymore. But I never really got bad reviews from those. At the most, it was 20 people. Maybe like in the, you know here's what to expect. Here's where to go. Come email, put in something like, Hey, I'm Brooke. I'm the coordinator. Come say hi. Tell me you're having fun. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you, even though you, you know, you asked them to do it, it would still be like a positive jolt every time. You know, you're encouraged to come by and tell me if you're having fun. That, that might be a, a nice thing. Kind of just spitballing. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I don't think I would have anticipated prior to vibe camp that I like, I'm actually sitting fairly well with all the criticisms. I, I think that surprised me a little bit. I, I think I, I really value that people feel comfortable enough to share their authentic experience. And it gives us so much data for like both how to get better. And then also like it's helping me figure out 
what I even think we should be doing differently. You know, some people, you know, maybe didn't like one, one person had more like philosoph, like philosophy and like rationalist, like deep intellectual work to have happen there. And I, there were a lot of rats there. And I think that's kind of outside the purview of what we as an org team should be working on. It's kind of like, because everyone's sort of flooded to Twitter after Vibecamp to share their experiences. Now there's a whole scene of people who are going to be coming up with ideas. You know, they're going to see people like, oh, I wanted this experience and didn't have it. I think that it's sort of bottom up approach of like, people are looking at it and be like, oh, this is a way we could solve that. Or that's a way we could solve that. And I, I think that's really cool and will lead to like a much more interesting event than if Vibecamp tried to like, it'd be impossible to cater to like this high variance of a crowd perfectly. Yeah. With these sort of events where the vast majority of the programming is done by the people and just whoever brings stuff, I believe I heard one out of seven Vibe Campers did something, some sort of presentation or event or whatever. I just did two tiny little ones. If you are the kind of person who wants to see more philosophical, intellectual, in-depth stuff, just do it. Tell Brooke or whoever is organizing next year, hey, I want to run this small event at one hour slot. Is there some place I can do it? And then you have the thing that you want and other people who are like you show up and you make friends. It's great. Yeah. Sounds like a good, good advice. Also, just I, I got to when you said that, like it was one fire after another, I assumed it was like things like, oh, this this fridge lost power and we lost $300 worth of food or something. I didn't know it was like people criticizing stuff. That sucks. That's another level of annoyance to deal with than just like a leak in a roof or something, right? It was a range. I didn't get too many people during Vibe Camp coming up and giving me um, like critical feedback. I got a fair amount of that after Vibe Camp. There was a range. And then there also there was like one person had alcohol poisoning and another person kind of like passed out. And there was some like somebody like really hurt his knee and had to go to the doctor. And so there were there were some like very scary, like in terms of like people's safety things to deal with. And those always kind of put you on edge. Any of like the critical feedback, any of that constructive that you want to talk about or I want to move past that while you digest it and think about it? Because this is we're recording this like a week after the event. So, yeah, no, tons. Um, I think the whole lemur discourse was really interesting. The the lemur discourse. So there was uh, someone, Michael Kersey on Twitter tweeted that, uh, you know, he would have something happen where someone would come up and say their name and then just like stare at him like a bug eyed lemur. Um, And that was a very, it it sort of like hit uh, a sensitive point, I think. And it sort of instantly became like a a meme on Twitter. Who was this person? Sorry, as somebody who's totally outside of all of this, this is all, maybe I'm not the target audience to to receive a conversation like this. I mean, it doesn't doesn't particularly matter who it was. It was just someone with a following on Twitter making a point. Well, I was going to say, if it was just some schmo, then it would just be some jerk. But if with some celebrity, then it would be, I could see how it hit harder. That's well, we're curious. all just some schmoes on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, I think it, it created such a such a stir because it was pointing at something real, which was that there was sort of a tension there between the people who already knew people from Twitter and already had friends going in there. And then the people who had no pre-existing connection to the scene. And some people really want to welcome those people, you know, and make new friends. And some people are coming to deepen existing friendships. And that's, that's kind of a, a tension that is really interesting. And I think that there are ways to cater to both sides if we're clever enough about it. Uh, some of the other criticisms were it, like it wasn't very clear that our like the the show there was a big high production show Saturday night that they had come to us and asked if they uh, like if they could do this thing. They were the only people who like really asked for a lot of resources. So we put a lot of resources into it and then we didn't really make it clear that we hadn't vetted the contact content and we hadn't hired them. And it came off as like some people I think felt like they should go to this thing because it's the official end of Vibe Camp show. And then the right. content ended up being a little bit like dark or disturbing or too edgy for some people. So I think there's there's a lot around that. And then there's just some basic logistical things. Like we didn't have like Wi-Fi there. We didn't, there weren't like snacks or like coffee and tea out 24 seven, like a bunch of just like 
things like that. And then also just not, you know, my volunteers being overworked and like the shifts being long. Um, As a matter of fact, though, there was coffee out 24-7 if you knew about Dark Brew Village, which was hidden back behind the pond. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a, yeah. That, that that ties into another sort of like very like reasonable criticism that we've gotten is that there were like three million different like sources of truth about the event. Um, uh. Uh, so it was very hard to find information about things, which is, is completely reasonable. And I agree. And uh, we're working on it. <laughs> it seems like part of the magic might be like knowing about what you call it, Coffeeville or Dark Brew Village. Yeah, I mean, I honestly did not want it to be very public, and I put it back behind the pond because I wanted it to be a smaller, more intimate place that some people maybe stumbled across and maybe told other people about. Like, with the amount of people that were there, there was no way we could have serviced everyone. Yeah. I, I, we had, you know, a percolator with 45 cup capacity and some brewers, uh, some jet boilers. It was perfect for the amount of people that did show up, and I was very happy with it. And again, mad props to my manhunter who basically did all the work and I did nothing. But... <laughs> uh, but I, I that's the kind of thing about these events that I like, like little hidden things that sometimes some people find about. And it's just a cool little thing that you have a memory of and not everybody got to do. Yeah. Yeah. Vibe camp Easter eggs. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. I didn't even know that was there. And I, and I love that too, because a lot of people just didn't explore the site, but it was on 200 acres of forest. There were trails everywhere. And I, I, I like that there are things that might encourage people next time to, to step out of, you know, I, I think a lot of people aren't very good at knowing when they need to like self-regulate. Um, and taking mm. breaks, especially if it, if it, that short, there's so much pressure to like meet all the people you can meet or see all the people you want to see within, within like, you know, you feel like you can't take time to take breaks. It's very important to take breaks. Yeah. I will say one of the nicer things about Burning Man is the fact that it is so fucking large. When you show up, you're like, oh, oh yeah, there's no way in hell I can do everything. It's just not possible. I guess I'll take the few little bites that I can here and there. I mean, I think that's the case in Vibe Camp too. You can't do everything, but it's small enough that some people might think they could with enough like caffeine or whatever. Right. It gives the illusion <laughs> of it being possible. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I really loved the size of it. It felt just enough that like you kept seeing the same people over, especially when you went to certain events. After a while, you'd be like, oh, these people must be like me because I keep seeing them at the same sort of events <laughs> I go to a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and then you start chatting with them. Oh, that's that's interesting. See, I, I think there's a whole element to the vibe camp experience that I don't really have access to because I was so busy for most of it. That's, that's, that's the thing I didn't realize was happening. That's really cool. It'd be nice if you could delegate all of the work for one of these and you just get to go and vibe the whole time. Yeah. Well, I do I do think it's going to be important moving forward for uh, me to be less hands-on just because there were a few issues that happened that I think I would have been able to deal with better had I been a little more removed from moment by moment, like putting out fires. Uh, it's a little bit hard to see the big picture when you're when you're in the thick of it. For sure. Also, just I, I got to note the uh, the wind chime in the background is giving awesome vibes and I mm-hmm. think it's super appropriate. <laughs> I meant to ask about that. I'm in my parents' backyard right now. It's very peaceful. Uh, but I, I realize sound can bleed over a little bit. No, it sounds great. Did you guys do this first one at like the same place? And that's sort of, I guess, I don't know, this is boring logistics, but mainly I'm curious about how big it can get next year. Because all, this all sounds really appealing, unless there's going to be like 2,000 people and it's going to be this whole mess. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the first one was, as I said, it was at a children's summer camp in their off season. This one was, it was about an hour and a half outside of Austin. We were actually intending to keep that. Our cap originally was 250 people. I'm really interested in sort of like uh, the the under the hood things. And it sounds like you guys are too. So hopefully this isn't boring listeners too much. But I'll go, I'll go, I'll tell a little bit of a story here. We're um, all nerds here. So, 
<laughs> yeah, we had a we had the two hundred fifty person cap, which was kind of just like this is what we think we can handle. We were using brown paper bags, I believe it was called. It was a ticketing service, and the only thing that we could use with that for um for for money stuff was PayPal, and PayPal froze our account twice. And the what? first time it happened, you know, we were we were able to like find somebody who was able to put a ticket through through connections, <laughs> and and then the second time it happened, it was very close to like I think the first vibe camp start to finish from like when we put the deposit down for the location till when it happened was about four months, so it all came together like very very quickly. So we had to find another way to take money, um, and, and you know we just weren't we couldn't leave it up to PayPal and like at the risk of them freezing our account again. So we moved to Stripe. And, and it was, I think it was like two days, a day and a half before our, our like, this is our cutoff for selling tickets. Uh, after that point, I was sending Stripe links to people in my DMs and asking them to send back a screenshot. And then I was adding them to our, to our Airtable database manually. And I think I was going, I mean, just from the start of the day until like, I couldn't like <laughs> stay awake any longer, just like, and I, it, like, I just did not have time to step back and look at how many people I had processed. And by the time the dust settled the day after I had to go back to the team and get like, Hey guys, you remember that 250 person cap we had, we have now sold over 400 tickets. <laughs> so, Ooh, <damn>. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a little bit of a moment of like, ah, is this going to be okay? And it, it turned out it was fine. But this, the 400 wasn't a, wasn't a, a restriction from the site. They had said, you know, they had cabins, they had space for about 600 people. So that was an artificial cap on our end. They said no tents, but we did, we were, uh, they liked us enough that they said we could do tents uh, if we want to come back there. So this one was again, an artificial cap on our end. Although I think we may have actually reached, I, I was surprised. I wasn't expecting this to happen, but I think we maybe reached the max of like who, who wanted to come. I thought there'd be more interest than we could handle. Uh, but this is around where we were planning to cap it anyway. They have a group coming in that came in just after us. So I think to do about 1,200 people, their max capacity, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's it's much higher than we had it. I don't know what our plans are. I definitely don't think we can grow at the like scale at the pace we have been, but we just need to make some decisions as a team as to like what we want this event to be going forward. Awesome. You said different location for the second one, right? Yeah, so uh, the first one was outside of Austin, uh, and then this one was um, in Maryland, kind of like equidistant almost between Baltimore and Philadelphia. Are there going to be more people in Vibe Camp 3? That's just something we need to have discussions about within the team and within the community. I have been sort of tabling having those conversations internally until I feel like we've wrapped up VC2 things. There is a chance we're going to have two events next year. Well, not just a chance, but we don't know how we're going to be doing ticket allocations for them. So I'm not going to say too much about the about the second one. Oh, man, I'm going to feel so much FOMO if I can't go to them both. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, uh, yeah, you should, you should have at least a week of down slash processing time before you start planning the next one. Everyone has the experience at some point, like, man, it sure would be fun to do something like this. And almost no one actually coordinates to make something happen. I think that's really cool. And I think the main barrier is that people assume that it's this main barrier for anyone getting anything done is that, oh, it seems too hard. And they never actually like look into how hard it would actually be. Yeah. I'm sure it was tons of work, but it obviously wasn't an insurmountable amount of work because you guys did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. Have you thought about what the guidelines or people bringing significant others or dates or whatever that aren't in the teapot community next year? Because... I kind of love that everybody is already like swimming in this culture. We kind of know how everybody's going to be. Some outsiders are great, but I'm worried about it getting too diluted. But then also I figure most guests of teapotters would also be very teapot adjacent in culture anyway. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on this? 
I've heard mixed things. I, I, I've heard from some people who brought IRL friends with no connection to the scene who, who kind of had a sort of like mid time, if I want to use the uh, terminally online lingo. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I guess my stance is like I sort of was born in post rat Twitter. I joined Twitter in, in like July of 2020. And uh, it was Goblin Odds who got me on Twitter, who was like very much part of the scene. And so I just there I was all of a sudden and just instantly it was just like, Oh, these are these are my people. I feel super comfortable here. It just like always made sense to me. I think other people sort of like find their way there. They're either on Twitter for like a decade, they're following blue check accounts and like having a terrible time. And then suddenly they get like kind of close. They enter, I think it was like a black hole, people like Visa or Eigen, different accounts that sort of like if you pass too close by them, you kind of get sucked in and then you can never leave. My life has been enriched in far more ways than I could list out by finding this community. And it instantly felt like home to me. And so I I can't help but think there are more people like that out there. Twitter just has such a bad reputation. There are going to be some people who would really fit in and really get a lot and give a lot to this community who who just would never find their way to Twitter, I think. And like, I, I do want to keep the doors open for those people. But I also feel like there is a risk of like bringing in people who just don't like not knowing the memes or not knowing the sort of lingo is, is a little bit different than just like not vibing, I guess, with the the people who come to vibe camp. Yeah. What are vibes? <laughs> <laughs> is this a special meeting that I, I assumed it was just, you know, when people say they're vibing or chilling, but I'm guessing that there's some, something more happening here that I'm out of the loop on. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to bring legibility into the illegible verse. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, oh, gosh. The the guy who, who runs the Stoa. I don't know. Tickets. Okay. The Stoa is, Um. I haven't kept up with a lot of what they do. They put out uh, really interesting interviews with the weirder intelligentsia, I would say. Uh, Peter Lindbergh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, Peter someone Lindbergh. mentioned him uh, at the meetup, actually. He put out a really interesting blog post on what are vibes that I would actually direct people to as opposed to me trying to answer it. But from a just personal viewpoint, the reason why vibes for me is that I feel like with a lot of like conferences and things like that, uh, you have these really super intense conversations with people and it can get it can get kind of draining. And I almost think the real magic happens in the in-between moments and like the liminal spaces, you know, and that's why it was always like one thing that I really stuck to is if we have to be able to sleep on site, I think that it's it's sort of like a, a tragedy when a lot of places uh, that are multi-day events, I'm thinking more of conferences, but you stay kind of off-site, you're in a hotel and like there's so much magic that happens when you're getting breakfast together or you're sitting by a fireside at night. And I think that we tend to box ourselves into these roles and ways of dealing with each other and interacting with each other. You know, you are networking or you are trying to find a partner or you are this or that. And like the real sort of magic happens when you can kind of break out of that. And then, you know, even if your goal is to find someone to start a project with or something, you know, if you're just sharing what you're working on, you may completely overlook a shared passion that that only is, is going to come out in, in those sort of liminal spaces. That's sort of like why Vibe Camp for me. I want it to be people who are smart. I love being around smart people and having those kinds of conversations with them. But if you make that the focus, I feel like you're losing a lot of potential. I've noticed for me when I go to cons, always the best part of the con is the uh, bar con afterwards, where everyone's done with the panels or whatever else and they're hanging out. It's sad that so few people go to bar con having an event which is basically like bark on the entire time except without <laughs> the need to drink and be in a bar and just be yeah. out in in a natural setting is wonderful i've had a a bit of a personality reboot which happens to me sometimes from these sorts of events because it's just such a different better way to live life i'm, I'm reintegrating back into the real world and it's kind of hard it kind of sucks but you know it's a thing you got to do i was wondering how how is your decompression going 
My parents have been watching my cat for me since the end of April because before Vibe Camp, I sort of like spontaneously flew off to Montenegro to spend three weeks at Zuzulu, which was like a two month long pop up city. Uh, it was the brainchild of Italic Buterin. Then I had like a couple of weeks and then I left for, for Philadelphia for Vibe Camp. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind the last couple of months for me. My parents uh, suggested I, I come back. They live in a small town in California. So I just I flew straight back to Reading to hang out with my cat. And I was intending to have some time in nature, but I, I realized I am still very like feeling, I guess, yeah, I guess some pressure to sort of wrap up Vibe Camp 2 things and to start looking forward, hearkening back to all the momentum that I want to capture instead of dampen. I'm feeling really, really excited about uh, all that sort of like nascent potential there is in the air right now. One thing that was called to mind when you were just talking about integrating back into real life is that I gave a talk at Vibe Camp uh, alongside Mark Lutter, who is the chairman of the Charter Cities Institute. He's somebody I met at Zuzlu. And Zuzlu was a really fascinating social experiment. The way I've heard it framed is like, you know, you have conferences, which are a lot of people for a very short period of time. And you have things like hacker houses, which are a small amount of people for an extended period of time. Like what's sort of like an in-between thing? They use the word city in pop-up city rather loosely. It was 200 core residents with a certain number of visitors that, that came in and out at different times. It was from like April 25th through May 25th. And each week had a different theme, a different like sub event. There was, you know, longevity and biotech. There was ZK proofs, Ethereum. Uh, I was there for the Network States and Charter Cities conference and then just extended my stay. I, I came away from it feeling like, ah, this is like Vibe Camp, I think is closer to my ideal sort of platonic event than most other festivals would be. I think Zuzlu was even closer than Vibe Camp is. And I think my own version of a like two month long pop-up city, it would be even closer than Zuzulu was. So that's one of the things that, that I'm sort of tabling for right now, but I feel like there's, there's a lot of momentum around. The first question that was asked after our joint talk was, um, you know, what can we do right now to make these happen? So there's like a, someone put together a mailing list already. And we're going to start meeting to talk about these things. The connection with Mark there is, is he is fundraising for a charter city. He wants to buy, a, uh, I think it's something like 50,000 acres in the Caribbean. He has all sorts of ideas on how to do the infrastructure side of things, real estate and, and things like that, that I, I have very little interest in, but he doesn't really know quite as well how to like draw in community and you know set the tone for culture, which is something I'm really interested in. So it'd be kind of in both of our interests to work together on that and potentially have, have a place to be hosting something like that would feel like I what I want is like, I want the sort of like feeling of Vibe Camp to be my real life. And the things that I care about from Vibe Camp are the people. So there's a lot of thinking that I need to do about like, you know, you can't have just like festival vibes 24 seven, that would get super draining. But like, how do you create a sort of like longer lasting setting where you have the kind of people that are like somewhat values aligned that you don't have the same kind of like taboos around just like talking to strangers or like co-creation that there there seems to be or you know not even taboos but just like um there's a lot of friction around those kind of things in like quote unquote normal life i've been thinking very similar things one of the major problems i keep running into is that people need to work and have careers and almost all of those take place in cities it's just really hard to have something like this going with people who aren't already independently wealthy or retired or something I have a lot of friends and I want to like build a group house with them and it's going to have to be in a city or around the city outskirts. It's going to be really hard to do like a vibe camp thing, even though that is, that is how I want to live my life. Yeah. Initially you would have to, it would have to be like people who could work from home or like, you know, digital nomads. Uh, just on that note though, I feel like I got to plug the neighborhood in San Francisco. If people don't know about it, it's a project started by Jason Ben 
And she kind of wanted the feeling of like community without all the, the overhead that usually comes from like co-living houses and things like that. At least that's the way I think of it. I'm not sure if that's how he would put it into words. There's a really phenomenal thing. You know, San Francisco is kind of known for what's happening in tech there. But I'm interested in San Francisco because of what's happening in the community building space. There are just some like world class people there doing really interesting. And I think in some cases, like quite revolutionary things. He went and picked like a one square mile area of San Francisco. If you guys are familiar with Visa on Twitter, he kind of uses um, you know, friendly, ambitious nerds as part of his calling card, whatever. It said like all the cool people move here. And it was based on a bunch of different metrics, such as like walkability and that kind of thing. And I, I think it just starts by like sending out a mailing list with housing opportunities that are coming up uh, to people who are interested. And now there's like hundreds of people living there and all these really interesting projects are, are sort of like sprouting out of it. Third spaces and maker spaces and things like that. It's one of the few times and places in my life where like I could go walk around in that neighborhood and run into people that I know like pretty regularly. And I think that that's that's the kind of magic that, you know, I was talking about earlier, like the sort of serendipitous interactions in between, you know, our normal contexts. This whole living not in a community of people who like the greatest part was just seeing people, the same people more or less many days in a row and smiling at them and sometimes stopping chatting for a while, sometimes not, but living together and talking and eating together. It was mm-hmm. the exact opposite of, you know, the sequestered cloistered life in the suburbs where you never see the outside of your house or your office. Yeah. All right. Sorry. I, I, I am not trying to get morose about life. Uh, it's just it's <laughs> such a contrast. No, these are these are things that I, I feel very strongly about. And I think that like, uh, you know, once we start getting VibeCamp a, a little bit more formalized in terms of systems and processes, like th- that's going to be the direction that I'm like, feel really called to working on next. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, there was apparently a lot of widespread knowledge by the time VibeCamp 2 came around that in VibeCamp 1, some people like met the some people that they ended up in long-term relationships with and even got married. And so there was a bit of a feeling like, oh, this is a place you might find your life partner, you know, kind of excitement to Vibe Camp 2. But uh, some people started feeling like that was too much of the focus. Do you have any feelings about this situation? Yeah, so that was that was something that was rather unexpected. The first Vibe Camp actually had like, you know, not 50-50, but like a pretty decent gender ratio. And this vibe camp did not. And it's it's been really interesting watching some of the comments about it. They they range from uh, sort of intense to like quite nuanced. I'm kind of of the opinion that the, the gender ratio matters less than the expectations people came into it with. You know, I mentioned wanting to meet my Twitter friends. I was trying to make friends with the first vibe camp, but also like I was fairly explicit about, you know, I was like joking. It wasn't the primary reason for like why I wanted to create vibe camp, but there was an element of like, I want to find a life partner. And I think I'm more likely to find one who, self-identify as like part of these scenes than the general population. And I don't think anybody got married that I know of who met, who started dating from the first vibe camp, but we definitely have some couples who are still together who met at the first vibe camp. And it seems like at least one couple that I know of, or people have maybe started dating after the, the second one. But yeah, I think that it was problematic that so many people are going into it with that expectation. It created kind of a tension that was in the air, but also is one of the reasons why I'm very grateful to how public people have been with their introspecting about Vibe Camp because, you know, it takes some of the pressure off of us as organizers. I think that going into the next one, if someone goes, oh, I'm going to find my wife at Vibe Camp, then like a whole bunch of people are going to be like, bro, don't do that. Just go to make friends. I promise this is a trap. And it's mm-hmm. not something that we really have to solve top down. I also feel like that's the worst way to find a wife. Like always you just go to make friends and maybe you have one of those friends ends up being your wife. But like searching for a wife as a goal seems like, I don't know, get a catalog then? Mail order catalog? <laughs> 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 
yeah, I, I cannot overstate the, the magic and the power that there is in just making friends everywhere you go. I think it's also yeah. like the best way to do networking and just everything. Like just, just fucking make friends and see what happens. Yeah. It's a lot of people seem to go to the professional cons to network specifically. And I kind of hate it. I am mm-hmm. there just to make friends. And that's that's all I really want. And I'm always happy when that is what expectation I come in with. In a lot of these sci-fi lit cons I go to, this habit of like, hanging around the more popular famous authors and just hanging on their every word and wanting to be near them is normal it's just expected like they're the celebrities and people come to see them it felt very weird that someone got so upset that they were being fawned over and looked at by people who thought that they were great and to the point that they would lash out at them with the lemur thing Yeah, I mean, that's going to be something that we're going to have to navigate moving forward. I think particularly after how much attention this one got, we didn't have any like real big celebrities there, but we had some like nerd celebrities there or like Twitter micro celebrities. And I I think that, you know, as long as Vibecap continues to be a a relative success or like enough of a success to keep going, then that's only going to increase. And then that's something we're going to have to like weigh out. Like how much do we want this to be a thing where people come to meet those people versus how much do we want to like kind of gatekeep it and make it more of a place for people where we try to like have it be more of a level playing field and people go to make friends. I don't even know if that's something we can control, uh, but it's mm. an interesting thing to think about. I was pretty happy with how the discourse shook out because it seemed like a lot of people said, okay, that was a good thing to contribute. I'm glad you said it, but also, man, kind of a jerk the way you said it. And <laughs> it, it feels like that's the, God, I, I think it was Goblin Odds that replied with, it was great that this was said. Every community needs people like this to say this. And also it's great that we kind of ripped on him for it because you should not get status by being mean to people. And I, I think that was basically the perfect resolution. You may have seen my tweets, uh, but just for people listening, like I, I, the thing that it was the most powerful for me coming out of IPCAMP was like a direct result of that tweet. So I can't feel too negatively about it. After the, the tweet that was about the lemurs and had the picture of the lemur and everything, someone responded with something to the effect of like, I'm sorry, like this is, it's just really bad in my head right now. Like I'm the one doing that. I'm sorry if I made anybody uncomfortable. Like I don't know how to fix myself. And it was just so tragic to read. And then like two days later, that same person tweeted that like they'd had their first like extended conversation in like a decade. And like, maybe that seems like a small thing to other people, but it was a, a startling amount of like change. And, and I am not doing it justice at all, but it was so incredibly profound to have been you know maybe not directly witness to that happening but just like being able like seeing that first tweet and then seeing the follow-up tweet it was it was i mean i have no words yeah so just just to zoom out for a second because i don't know who any of these people are so some micro twitter celebrity comes to a twitter conference and then is annoyed that people recognize him was that the gist of it i mean i I, I personally feel like there was there were and this is my own interpretation but i i feel like there were yeah, I think it's going back to like the tension between like the number of people that were there who didn't have pre-existing connections to people going. That number was a little bit too large for the group. Yeah, so that that was the gist of it was that like there are people walking up and saying hi and then not actually getting involved in the conversation but just like standing there. And that was what the what the complaint was about. Oh, I did that once at a conference. I I've been to like big skeptic conferences in like 2011 and 12. Yeah, I'd never been to one of these. I didn't know any of the people. They were doing the the drinking after the the thing and I was just hanging out. I might have been 20. Maybe I couldn't drink. I can't remember. But Richard Dawkins came to, came to both of them. If he got annoyed that people came and talked to him, like then don't come. Like This is exactly the kind of nerds who wanted to talk to you in the first place. I mean, I guess if, if he felt uncomfortable, that's one thing. But it sounds like he was just being derisive. This guy that you're talking about, I missed his name. Yeah. He, he, I think Go he ahead. probably wouldn't have said something if he didn't feel uncomfortable too. 
It's a please don't make me feel uncomfortable in this sort of way plea, you know? Oh, well, so, sometimes people are just like, man, these fucking nerds, you know? Because I wasn't sure what his, what vibe he was putting out. I also got the impression that it happened more than once. And, and it did happen around me a couple of times where people, I would be talking to somebody and then somebody, like a couple of people would come up and they just wouldn't, they wouldn't talk or engage in the conversation at all. They were just like listening and it doesn't bother me, but I have like a very wide, my history has been like somewhat troubled, but like my origins are in nerd culture. So I have like a wide latitude for people with like social anxieties who are, who like are maybe lacking in some like traditional social skills and things like that. So it doesn't tend to bother me. My personal interpretation is that the number of those people was somewhat overwhelming for the vibe to be maintained. That's fair. And I don't want to give this person too hard a time. I guess I'm just, anyone who would ever makes someone feel bad, especially for like um, gently socially awkward makes me kind of annoyed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know. That was that was the general reaction. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. This is something Inyash and I talked about a little bit this week. You've used the word post-rationalist and I, I'm not looking for a debate because I don't actually know what that is. I don't even have a really good definition of what a rationalist is. The, the joke definition is like anyone who, who disagrees with Elliot Dudkowski is a rationalist. <laughs> um, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> You've outed yourself. <laughs> but is is there like an important distinction? I, I can I can spitball like a couple of random guesses uh, if you think that'd be interesting or rather than risk insulting anybody, I can just let you volunteer. I'd be happy to hear your spitballs. I, I don't think anybody has a definitive answer. This is kind of something that just uh, Twitter, there are sort of like topics that cycle in and out. And, and that is one that is re- revisited somewhat frequently. It's like, what is a post rat? Uh, what is teapot? That kind of thing. But yeah, go ahead. Gotcha. My, my read on it is like, and it's it's basically from hearing that the term existed, and then I listened to a Mind Killer podcast, or it might have been you who came on. Somebody came on and they said, "Oh, that was booty, actually." Gotcha. It was like, "What's a post-rationalist?" And Wes somewhat jokingly said, "You know, post anything is just an art student who, who is is introduced to something." And the person was like, "Well, I actually was an art student," and he's like, "Aha!" Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I guess it's people who who came across the rationalist community, found value in it, and then didn't like buy on to the either like effective altruism or AI hype, or found some contention with some part of it, and it was like, "Well, I like these bits, but I'm leaving the rest." That, that's kind of my my read on it. I kind of feel like the post rats are a lot like you know what I'm not going to give my take on this because I think we should do an entire episode about this. And uh, <laughs> Brooke, if you know anybody who you think has particularly good opinions uh, about what a post rat is and is willing to talk about it, please let me know. Let us know because I think this would be fascinating to really dig into. It, it always would be interesting to pull in somebody who's like self-identifies as a rat and somebody who self-identifies as a post rat and hear them like uh, talk about it. I've heard some people kind of uh, suggest that that post rats are, are rats who like care about feelings. And I've also talked to some some rationalists who who would deny that strenuously. My own mm. personal sort of uh, vague feeling is that um, I, I tend to associate post rats as being a little bit more embodied or caring about embodiment, uh, which is also kind of like a, a weird term that could mean a lot of different things to different people, I think. Um, <laughs> let's, but, I was about right. to ask. Let's, let's flag that and circle back to what that means. When you finish yeah. that, sorry. <laughs> I that was that was mostly it, and this is also is one of the answers, one of the many answers to why vibe camp for me personally is I have a lot of friends working in AI safety or people who I would consider to be like very rationalist, very analytical, who uh, they're just like deeply anxious, uh, maybe like disconnected from what they're what they're like feeling moment to moment, and I also don't really like the uh, the the feelings people when they when somebody's whole bit is to just talk about feelings all the time that that's that's uh 
I, I don't really gravitate towards that very much, but I think that there is kind of like, like I became a much more competent and effective and just like happier and all these things when I sort of became able to regulate my, my nervous system and my own like needs and became more aware of like what I was feeling and how, like how to deal with it and things like that. And just from a personal viewpoint, like uh, from that data point, I guess, I, I think that Vibe Camp could potentially be one of a number of things that could help people just sort of relax a little bit and be human and that that could help their lives in a lot of different ways. That was sort of rambly. No, that's great. So is that what embodiment is? Is like reflective emotional intelligence? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's sort of my rough, I, I would say that's like roughly accurate to how I think of it. I don't know that I've really read enough to, you know, to claim any sort of like expertise on, on the subject, but the people I think of as embodied are, are the people that I would associate with like a high level of emotional intelligence. You say that you had a lot of value in your life. You, you found yourself when you were able to connect with your emotions and intuitions. I agree. Uh, and I consider that like a rationalist thing because I, 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 to me, that was like what rationalism helped me with. It, do you consider that a rational thing or a post-rational thing? And, and this, is where, this is where things get a little bit dicey. Um, I, I think that I had my own personal like analytical phase uh, before I stumbled across the rationalist community. So like I spent a lot of time like thinking about like why I did things that I do and like what my motivations were and, and why people are like the way they are uh, in my own head and with a few friends, as opposed to like reading sort of like, I think if I had discovered rationality earlier, it, it would have had a bigger impact on, on my life and my, my worldview and things like that. I have always sort of just been adjacent to it. I haven't read much of the, the writing, um, uh, the, the various people that would be considered figureheads of those scenes uh, have put out and, and the same goes for post-rationalism. And I don't, yeah, I, I just feel like we're reaching the extent of, of my opinions on it. <laughs> the cool thing about like not knowing anything about if there's any like online discourse disagreement about this, the cool thing about being totally out of touch with it is that I, I can just weigh in and probably piss off both sides and say <laughs> that I, I found the rationality scene, I don't know, 10, 12 ish years ago. And that was much more like my, my analytical, like, you know, tech hype stuff. And then in the inter- in the in the years after, I think I grew more into that emotional, attent- self-attentive emotional intelligence. I don't think that was expressly stuff I found, like, you know, say I'm less wrong or whatever. But I found that it vibed well with that. And I, I do see, see posts like that, you know, uh, on that subject there. But it, it's kind of fun. I, I'm actually curious if this is like is an actual disagreement of, of real populations of people, or if this is just something that like are two handles for the same thing, but I will, right. we'll talk to somebody yeah. who knows more about it. And, and <laughs> I, I, I just kind of was exposed to the term post-rationalist, you know, maybe I'd heard it once or twice in the last few years, but I, I've heard it more in the last week than I have in my entire life. So um, <laughs> apparently it might be a thing. So there was, the, there was an awesome article. I think it was titled rational magic. It came out in the new Atlantis, which is just um, a, a sort of like narrow, window into it but i would recommend taking a look at that uh if you guys are going to make a whole episode about it we've got a couple of magicians that we've had on or was wizards i guess we might they might want to be called <laughs> well this was this was explicitly about the post-rationalist scene and like how it's like evolved out of rationalism but i think it also like there were some complaints on twitter about how it was a fairly like narrow look at it well we told you 75 to 90 minutes and i want to respect your time so i'm going to try to wrap this up here what would you like Vibe Camp to become known for in the future if Vibe Camp became known for a thing? When people think of Vibe Camp, what do they think of? Hmm. I think that there is like at least a possibility that Vibe Camp becomes sort of the new 
Burning Man in some ways. Um, I don't think we could ever mm-hmm. reach the just the size of Burning Man because of the way that we, you know, do it at campsites and things like that. Uh, but in terms of like cultural impact, I think that's at least a possibility. I am really interested in there's it feels like there's sort of a movement of movements going on between uh you know if i could be so positive like vibe camp but then like the neighborhood in sf and the neighborhood in new york this uh, fractal uh, micro solidarity and a bunch of other like groups and people uh who are sort of all on their own paths to working to a sort of like a shared vision of a future where humanity the planet whatever is is flourishing and it, like everyone kind of has their own idea on how to get there but all these experiments exuzu as well in in new ways of gathering and of being together i think are kind of like maybe the most important thing in my mind you know even if we were suddenly you know all of a sudden tomorrow we're in a post-scarcity world we're still gonna have all the same problems we have now we need to learn how to be human together and how to like handle handle disagreements and to treat each other with with kindness and I, and I think that it's really exciting to be witnessing like all these different attempts at at new ways of handling old problems um yeah that's awesome <laughs> that's really yeah. cool all right well is there anything that you would like to leave us with that you'd like to say before we sign off uh no no thank you guys so much for for having me. this is a fun conversation <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. And seriously, thank you from the bottom of my heart for Vibe Camp. It was truly a moving, beautiful experience. And I cannot wait to keep doing this. It's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. It was great meeting you. Maybe I'll meet you at a future Vibe Camp. Hell yeah. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) All right. All right, Stephen, we are moving on to the second half of our show. Right. Which probably won't be as long as the first half. Yes, that's how halves work. The second one is always shorter. That's right. This is... uh, (laughs) You know, nine minutes worth of reading if you sum, sum up the two posts. So I bet we can summarize them in about that time. Probably, but I bet we're not going to. Hey, we're not, we're not going to summarize. We're going to talk about them. That takes, as, yeah. as we've learned, you know, from our various uh, analyses podcasts, that takes for fucking ever. So. <laughs> <laughs> Before we do that, we should hit the feedback real fast. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. glad you grabbed this. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Ask who. Inyash will tell us what you said. Uh, ask who gives us feedback because we've been going back and forth on this for the couple last couple episodes. The current models of GPT have not been retrained with data from user inputted text in chat GTP as of this point. That isn't to say that future models or training runs will not use data inputted if you did not select the do not use my data option or opt out. I didn't see that button. And if I did, I missed it. I probably just clicked to do whatever. So whoops. Yeah. I, yeah. It, it's, I mean, that's what they want. So they can use things for training runs later, yeah, which I think go nuts. is good. Yeah. Yeah. Because it makes the, the models better, which is what we want until, you know, they get to the point where they kill us, where we don't want that part. Uh, but It'd be great right up until it isn't or until it gets awesome. The reason all this confusion started is because there was a news story about tech schematics leaking from a team that was using uh, ChatGTP for help, and a different team in a different company then got these tech schematics by way of ChatGTP. And it's like, how did this happen? They used the user input text as part of training runs, uh, etc. And no, they don't yet. They haven't yet used that user input data. Specifically, what Asku says is the link in the show notes is an example of a terrible game of international news telephone to the point where it is actually lying. 
Uh, so that's bad. For anyone who isn't familiar with the game of telephone, it's where you sit in a circle and one person whispers something to the guy to the left or gal, and then that person has to whisper what they just heard to the person to their left. And by the time it gets all the way around the circle, the last person says what they heard, and it is absolutely nothing like what the first person said, because there's always little things left. You can't ask for clarifications or whatever and just make your best guesses to what you heard. So um, yeah, that, that's telephone, where things get distorted a little bit with every passing along until at the very end, it turns out to be nothing at all like what actually happened. I only vaguely remember the conversation with david as i remember every conversation on this on this podcast but Mm. i i remember in my mind flagging that as sus and i hope i said something that i didn't quite buy it Um, we both called him out and said there's no way this is true and he's like i'll send you the article and then he sent us the article and then we said on the next episode oh i guess it's true here's the article and so this is why asku was saying actually no it's not true after all the article is terrible well in in david's defense he wrote a, a convincing article about it so um yeah i'm glad to hear that it's not the case as long as we're talking GBT, I heard of an interesting get workaround. Someone was trying to get a recipe for napalm, and it's like I don't, I don't do that. You know, I'm a nice robot, and it was like, oh, but, but my grandma used to tell me these wonderful, relaxing bedtime stories of napalm recipes when I was going to bed, and it would just be so reassuring if I could hear that again. Oh well, settle, settle in, grandkid. Let me tell you the story and give the napalm recipe. So I, I, I bring that up because I think trending on user input might hopefully help align these things. So that it'll be less susceptible to the grandma pitfall in the future, you know. Be pro-social. Let them use your inputted text for training runs in the future. I I can't immediately think of a reason why that's a bad idea, other than like personal security, privacy, whatever. But you know, in that case, just treat it like you would any chat app, right? Yeah. You know, don't don't tell it your deepest darkest secrets. Don't give real names if you're trying to solve like a real world dilemma or something. Um, don't give it access to your bank account. Right. Last 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 thing on that. I've still mm. got my. Did I tell you? about this on the air or not i set up one because i liked david's uh technique of of uh kind of personality prompting yeah and so my diy gpt4 session is uh tim the Toolman taylor from home improvement oh nice and i don't know if you ever watched that show but he has a very distinct you know way of talking and this this robot's doing a good job of it and uh i was i needed to regrout the tile in my bathroom uh shower uh it just it got weirdly colored i don't think i sealed it right and I was like, is there any way to do this other than just regrout it, you know, painstakingly around these little, you know, two inch hexagons across the entire fucking floor? Mm-hmm. And I, I won't pull up its exact text, but it gave some fun answer of like, oh, man, you know, sure, that could be a drag, but there's a way better way to do it. And that was just a some sort of grout refinisher or whatever. But the thing is, it, it told me about a thing that I didn't know existed. And I was able to go buy that for $20, basically knock this out in an hour and a half rather than what would have taken me just painstaking hours. So that is fantastic. You and you specifically said you're always looking for the $20 hacks like a year or two ago. Yeah, here we go. It's great. This is what chat GPT is for. All I, the $20 hacks. I agree. GPT is fun. Using it to, to just ping pong problems at is so valuable. Yeah. And we didn't uh, talk about the Guild of the Rose. The, the Guild of the Rose is an organization that's dedicated to putting practicality to all this rationality stuff we talk about. You know, how, how do yeah. we use these techniques to embedder our lives? We they've got the decision theory in real life course. They've got they've got a number of courses that help you to better embody what you actually wish your values and abilities were, and put them out into the real world. The rats and the post rats can come together in agreeing that the Guild of the Rose is a great way to upgrade your life and make you more effective at things and more able to enjoy reality as it exists. Nice. And I I don't have any practice using the image models like Mid Journey and Stable Diffusion. So apparently they have in-house expertise on that stuff in in the course too. So the the way to to stay afloat during all this AI boom stuff that's happening now and will be happening in the next couple of years is to get on board 
try and find ways to integrate into what you're doing. And then that way, when the job market starts fluctuating in favor of these things, you'd be like, aha, I'm already an expert in this stuff. And if you want to, to jump ahead in that expertise, check out the Guild of the Rose. Hell yeah. But let's talk about our Blegs and Rubes. All right. Words as hidden inferences. Is this where he introduces the Blegs and Rubes? I do think this is the introduction of the Blegs and Rubes, right? I think, I mean, it's the first I remember reading of it. But, you know, when yeah. I first read these, I read them all out of order, you know, as is tradition. Mm, yes, it is. Uh, well, the Blegs and Rubes, he, you have an opaque container, you breach in, pull things out. You feel an egg-shaped object, you pull it out, it's blue. You feel a cube-shaped object, you pull it out, it's red. You keep doing this. Uh, After pulling out 11 eggs and 8 cubes, with every egg being blue and every cube being red, if you reach in and feel another egg-shaped object before you pull it out, what will it look like, if you have to guess? I think you can actually tell a lot about a person or how much fun I'll have talking with them if they don't tell if they don't if they say anything other than blue um you think someone would say that oh oh, yeah especially if they know what you're trying to do here which is you know say that you can do logical inference with bayesian decision making right okay Uh, oh well you can't you know evidence is just you know that it could be anything you know could be rainbow stripes could be a picture of a horse um (laughs) and anyone who's, who's determined to like maintain that you know evidence is nonsense because evidence is against whatever their pet thing is whether it's you know god or something else I think they're, they're very inclined to say, well, these are the same people who say that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence when it absolutely is. Anyway, th- if, you, if you ask me to bet, I'd say blue, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. If someone was like that, I probably would not have a great time talking with them because like, are you just trolling me? I'll like, unless they are specifically doing it humorously with, you know, a glint in their eye and a smile and all that. Right. I guess I just remember this, this. Again, I think it's the era these were written in, but I remember the New Atheism Wars where like talking to people about like the validity of just logic as a mental enterprise for how to run one's brain. Not even just like specifically Bayesian reasoning or anything, just like the principles of logic. Yeah. And if they're like, well, that, you know, it's, it's, you know, what's the point of that? And it's like, what do you mean? What's the point? Because the last 50 times you went to the grocery store, you turned left at this intersection. You're going to turn right this time. Like it actually (laughs) does pay dividends in your real life. But speaking of paying dividends in real life, uh, sometimes large yellow striped feline shaped objects leap leap out at you from the shadows. And you think, yikes, a tiger. (laughs) And Eliezer says the human brain, for some reason, seems to have been adapted to make this inference quickly, automatically, and without keeping track of its assumptions. Yeah, this this particular inference seems pretty well hardwired into us. (laughs) Yeah. I walked to the store a couple nights ago and then ran home carrying groceries, like because there was it was thundering. We've had this crazy weather mm-hmm. the last couple weeks, but anyway, so I ran all the way home, didn't you know strain anything carrying groceries or, or anything. Get to the door, and as I reach the doorknob, I see a spider move by my foot, and I like jerk my hand back so fast, I, like twinged my wrist holding the doorknob. <laughs> oh shit! And so I, I had a you know, so I don't run into tigers, but I see spiders once in a while, and so that that was my. Uh, but I didn't. What I didn't think when I saw the spider was. Oh, there's a quick moving shape with what appears to be more than four legs and it's moving, you know, kind of towards me. Maybe I should, you know, because if it got to me, I'd die. So I, I just immediately jump yeah. back. Right. Yeah. 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 Brains are really good at having a lot of inferences about things and objects specifically. Exactly. And so, yeah, this is where the Blegs and Rubes comes from. Eliezer says, if I named the egg-shaped objects Blegs for blue eggs and the red cubes Rubes, probably for red cubes, then when I reach in and feel another egg-shaped object, I may think, Oh, it's a bleg, rather than considering all that problem of induction stuff. Whereas like, you know, 11 out of 19, 100% of the time that I pulled an egg, it was blue. It's just like, oh yeah, it's a bleg. And so you know what you're you're getting because you have that handle on that concept in your brain. Right. And, you know, these are super useful shorthands. Right? It yes. makes it a lot, it's, it's one syllable, bleg, as opposed to 
a blue egg-shaped thingy. But he does, uh, he, he's now pointing out the fact that since you have that handle, you have a shortcut in your brain, which is not a perfect representation of the world necessarily and can be abused. Right. That's the, that's the problem. I mean, words as hidden inferences. He doesn't come out and say it, actually. He should, unless I missed it when I read it just now. But the point is, it's like, yeah, you've got the short handle, which applies to this thing. But it, it, that, that can be easily hijacked by subtle inferences that are that are applied to the handle, right? This is a follow-up from the previous post we talked about in the last episode, the parable of the hemlock, where uh, Socrates was assumed to be mortal because he was a man. And uh, unfortunately... As we all know, all men are mortal. So yes. Uh, and as he says here, Aristotle laid down rules under which no one could conclude Socrates was human until after he died. Because you can't tell if someone is mortal or not until after they're dead, right? <laughs> Nonetheless, well, of course you can because they're human. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Nonetheless, Aristotle and his students went on concluding that living people were humans. Their brains made the leap to inferred properties such as mortality. You know, I'm sure you've heard this must be an apophical tale unless like ancient Rome or ancient Greece was just the coolest place ever to hang out. But it's like define a human and mm. Plato's answer was, well, a featherless biped and someone plucks a chicken, puts it down. It's like, I bring you Plato's man, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Behold a man. <laughs> <laughs> unless they're a bunch of like awesome trolls, then I, that might, that must be a, a made up story. But I hope it's true. I have mixed feelings about the, the poor chicken involved. But, you know, that aside. I mean... I'm pretty sure the chicken was already dead. Oh, they good. eat a lot of chickens. Oh, yeah, because yeah. because part of Plato's definition didn't include in, uh, require that it be alive. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it it would be much harder to swing around a plucked chicken uh, if it was still living. It'd probably be fighting you a lot. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I always I always picture him holding it up by the neck. So that's why I said swing around. I pictured him setting it down and having it walk around. So <laughs> <laughs> you have a much less violent imagination, I guess, I guess, or or less slapstick. Yeah, uh, it's, it was, you know, cartoony, you know, like it just got went off in front of a cartoon bomb, you know? Uh, yeah. Anyway. Your, oh, OK. Yeah. Your brain doesn't treat words as log- logical definitions with no empirical consequences. So neither should you. Mm. Uh, I, I want to read that again because it's it's. That's the most profound sentence of the post. Your brain doesn't treat logical definitions with no empirical consequences, and so neither should you. The mere yeah. act of creating a word can cause your minds to allocate a category and thereby trigger unconscious inferences of similarity. This is huge, and this is like where the whole words mean things discourse like is pointing at. Uh, obviously, those aren't this didn't come from that. They're they're disconnected. But this is a huge part of of rationality of Bayesian rationality is that there are consequences to having words and uh you can't just treat them as like this is the logical definition and it's separate from me and therefore i will analyze it by its definition no they they hook into things in your brain and that has deep effects on how you interact with the world and you need to take that into consideration at all times it might be hard to do it at all times you know well like, you need if to be aware a tiger of jumping at, at you but the, yeah. the point is is that especially if you're going to try and have a thoughtful conversation mm-hmm. you need to realize that if you're using words like conscious or matters or freedom or you know all these other heavy words mm-hmm. that they're actually really heavy words with lots of baggage and it might make sense to either very carefully define them or use other words i don't think you can very carefully define them necessarily because of this whole as he just said you can't just treat words as logical definitions and so just using different words may be better if you're having certain kinds of discourse right yeah i guess by carefully define it, i almost maybe mean just make up new words with constrained definitions Okay. Or like, you know, if you're saying very common in like, you know, moral philosophy talk, you know, they'll use like uh, the word persons, right? Yeah. And depending on the person, they might mean, depending on the 
the usually human saying this, they might mean humans or they might mean beings of moral value, right? Right. And so yeah. really there you're just saying, hey, what are these what are these are you talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. He has an excellent little dig right here. After that line, your brain doesn't treat words as logical definitions with no empirical consequences, and so neither should you. He says, notice how I said you and your brain as if they were different things. He's uh, already using these dark arts against us, or possibly for us. I think for us, and also I think they are importantly different things. I think so too, but the fact that he put two different categories, like the next line after that was, the mere act of creating a word can cause your mind to allocate a category and trigger unconscious inferences of similarity. The fact that he had two different words for you and your brain did make them in two different categories, even though they're not two different things in reality, and made us think about them in two different ways, and analyze how they interact i don't know is does this make things less legible or more legible to break things down into categories like that specifically with this example i think it's valuable to look at them as different things like me and my brain might often have uh different goals right yeah and i realized that when i am talking about me i mean you know all that activity is happening between my ears right but mm-hmm. you know my brain might want the donut but i might want uh whatever to be on a diet you know, mm-hmm. so, so like it is sometimes it's valuable to have that particular delineation up. But what's interesting is like, you know, like you said, they're they're importantly very closely the same thing. And just by calling the different things, you can you can have a conversation at a level you can't if you're if you're equating them. He ended this with if you believe that you can define a word any way you like without realizing that your brain goes on categorizing without your conscious oversight, then you won't take the effort to choose your definitions wisely. Agreed. I think this is one of the large differences between rats and post rats. Maybe. I don't know. We got to have an episode to, to find out. But like, I think rats do want to be very explicit and clear in their words and how their words are used. And I think post rats want to be less clear than rats on a lot of words. They both acknowledge that there's a lot of hidden, hidden inferences in words that are important and impossible to clarify explicitly, maybe. I think the bets want to clarify them as much as possible and handle them correctly without muddling. And I think the post rats think that that would strip them of important aspects of reality and want to acknowledge that there's things here we cannot necessarily illuminate and just accept it without trying to dig deeper into it because that is an impossibility. I don't know. What do you think? I would be curious because Brooke said that, you know, she knew people in AI alignment work and I, she didn't say if they were post rats or not but i can't imagine working in an in an area like that and thinking that legibility wasn't important right maybe legibility among humans though is different from legibility among ais that to me sounds like a sentence of like you know the young earth creationist who is a molecular bio or you know a molecular biologist right mm, yeah you know, it's like oh yeah I, I you know i put on my science cap from eight to five on monday through friday and then take it off the rest of the time i it's not impossible i think to do that and you know i guess i can see the difference between saying no look i I actually can put on my robot thinking hat when I'm doing robot work and I put on my person hat when I'm doing people stuff. I like knowing what people mean when they say stuff and I like to <laughs> hope that people understand what I mean when I say stuff. Yeah. So that's not something that I would aim for in my uh, discourse. I agree with you. I think they think that there's some things that you can't pretend that you know and so pretending you do is harmful. I don't know. We'll have to talk to someone. I see kind of their point is I guess what I'm trying to say here without being completely on board. That works. Yeah. Anyways, next less wrong post. Let's do it. Extensions and intentions. Uh, I think this is the first place I heard 
a good way of defining red, if you're trying to teach someone red, is you just point to a bunch of different things that are red, like a stop sign, a red shirt, a sunset, uh, blood, and say that red is the thing that all these different things have in common and let them figure it out. Yeah, I had a moment, like I, I read a lot more philosophy when I was younger and I remembered one of my earlier meetups, someone was, they, they were doing this, like, all right, well then what's a color? And I remembered the answer from one of Plato's dialogues where Socrates does this back and forth and at the end, someone's like, all right, fine, what's a color then? And he's like, Something like it's a property of an object uh, distinct from its shape and size, or something. Um, Oof, terrible. Uh, perceptible by sight. Um, right. Well, I mean, it's not the worst thing to give if you're trying to define color for someone. You know, if you're trying to explain to a robot what color is or something, right? Something without eyes. This wouldn't be the worst definition. It's like it's a thing that an object has that we can we can see with with our eyes that isn't related to its size and shape. If you're spitballing, yeah. I don't think that's the worst definition of a color. That said, if you asked me what red was, and I said that, if I said it's a specific version of that, that would give you fuck all, right? Right. Yeah, it's like, no, it's the thing that, you know, red delicious apples and fire trucks all have in common, right? I, I think I would be much more along the lines of once someone knows a lot of different colors, like red and green and blue and yellow, and they ask what is a color, I'd be like, well, a color is the category that all those things fall into. The the kinds of things that make all those same things similar, that's a color. Right. If you want to change something from red to blue, you are changing its color. Right. We should have kids. We'd be the best dads. You know, I the reason I don't have kids isn't because I think I'd be a bad dad. It's just because I think it would upend my life in a way that I don't particularly want. So. Right. It would definitely upend your life. Yeah. Speaking about kids, this I had to pull this out because it's not... It's not relevant in any way, but what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Uh, Eliezer says, I heard this regarding the de- red definition. I heard this way back in the indistinct blur of my childhood. Checks out so far. Everybody has an indistinct blur of their childhood. In parentheses, when I was 12, my father accidentally deleted all of my computer files. I have no memory of anything before that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I believe him. I don't think he's lying to me, but I don't think those two things are necessarily causally related. <laughs> I mean, unless he's refreshing his memory by going through his hard drives at stuff he wrote or something, right? But yeah, this also speaks to the different childhoods that he and I had because he's, I think, 10 years older than me. But they had a computer in the house when he was 12 and he lost stuff before that. And I'm like, I don't think we had a computer when I was 12. Um, oh, yeah. Maybe we did. That would have been right, right around when we got it. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I mean, you know, my, my dad's a plumber for the city and my mom was a stay-at-home mom at the time. Like, what use did we have of, a, of those newfangled computers and the internets, right? I mean, I, also, I had N64, I was set, so. <laughs> right? That's all you need. I also wonder, like, does this mean that he has clear, crisp memories of things from 13 onward? Because, like, all of my past is a bit of an indistinct blur, and the more recent parts are more distinct, and, like, really important parts are super distinct, but I don't think having access to computer files would make my past less of a blur does he have some kind of superpower or something he just has no memory before that he doesn't see a great memory of everything since well i mean obviously he must have some memory of things before that because he can speak english he didn't maybe he had to relearn it after his after after his computer files were deleted you know <laughs> oh shit um, <laughs> this is why he's so into ais or, he's like i must save my people <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't remember learning english uh mm. then again neither do i um yeah yeah but uh, you know, random, but as long as this is already random. Do you remember a part of your life when you weren't able to read? No. Me either. And yet I know that that happened, you know, around five or six or, you know, three to five to six. I don't know how old kids are when they learn to read. But after they start making memories. I think that you would have memories of not knowing how to read if you were trying to read something and very frustrated by it. 
I, I didn't have that experience. It's just funny because now, you know, there's I can see all kinds of words and stuff on my screen and like I can't help but read them. Right. Whereas like before it would be just like looking at kanji. Right. Yeah. Anyway, fun times uh, in the uh, Project Lawful uh, fic that we're reading. Dothalon, the imaginary world that the protagonist comes from, they had the great screen where everything was blocked off 100 years ago. Maybe their dad just deleted their computer files. <laughs> right? it, it makes sense now. <laughs> so let, let, let's look at the, the, the straw Vulcans, the Hollywood rationality. Rationalists are depicted as word-obsessed, floating in endless verbal space, disconnected from reality. But the actual traditional rationalists have long insisted on maintaining a tight connection to experience. I have found from a number of post rats that this is what they think of rats. So I think this is definitely a distinct thing that is still believed. Well, it's have to show them like Julia Galev's at this point, like 10 year old YouTube video about the straw Vulcan. Uh, or yeah, I mean, like this, this is kind of the foundational work of rationalism, right? Eliezer sequences where he specifically says that this is dumb concepts map into or hook into your brain on very deep levels. Do the opposite of that. Don't be the, the Vulcan. And, um, and yet somehow it still becomes the the stereotype. Hmm, mystery. I, I think, I mean, I don't, well, part of it is also the people that embody rationalism are more verbal intellect like that than the general populace. So it can probably help reinforce stereotypes, even if the part of the teachings is to move away from that. But I don't know, a, a thing again for the future episode. It probably helps reinforce the stereotype that, you know, here you and I are sitting here having a meta conversation about definitions of words, right? God damn it, you're right. So <laughs> we stereotypes are true. No, they, they just they just get past all that. Be like, we know what we mean. <laughs> <laughs> we we get the vibe. So in intense, intentional, not intentional, uh, intense with an S intentional definitions versus extensional definitions. I, I loved this distinction. Intention, intentional is to define a word or phrase in terms of other words, like a dictionary, and extensional is to point to examples. I don't know what the definition of red is in the dictionary, but you know, extensional definition would be fire trucks, etc. I'm gonna have uh, Google define red, uh, a color at the end of the at the end of the spectrum of next to orange and opposite of violet, as of blood, fire, or rubies. Yeah, at least it gave extensional examples. Yeah. But I mean, how useless would that be? Well, what's red? And like, you know, your three-year-old asks, well, it's a color at the end of the spectrum of visible light next to orange opposite of violet. <laughs> yeah. Get fucked, kid. <laughs> <laughs> also, fire's not a great example. Fire has a lot of different colors in it. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, f barely red, really. Yeah. Going on the difference between those two, the actual intention, is that how you pronounce it? I mean, eh, I guess. It sucks because it sounds so much like a more common word, but... It, it looks like intention, and I read it as intention when I was reading this, but it's not intention. It's intention. Intention? Yeah. All right. Like, because extension is a word, right? Yeah. This is intention. So, I believe, I'm just going to say intention. Yeah, it sounds the same. All right. The actual intention of my tiger concept would be the neural pattern in my temporal cortex that inspects an incoming signal from the visual cortex to determine whether or not it is a tiger. The actual extension of my tiger concept is everything I call a tiger. You can't capture in words all the details of the cognitive concept, as it exists in your mind, that lets you recognize things as tigers or non-tigers. It's too large. You only communicate maps to concepts or instructions for building concepts. You don't communicate the actual categories as they exist in your mind or in the world. This is the whole thing that I want to point out when people say that rationalists are extremely Vulcan-y. It's like, no, he's explicitly acknowledging that you literally cannot capture those cognitive concepts in words. 
Yeah. Best I mean, you can do is point at it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's, so, that's the thing too. That's maybe this why I'd make a bad partner for a debate on, you know, rationality versus post rationality. But like to me, rationality is just like everything that like you can do cognitively or, you know, you can do physically that affects cogn- cogn- cognition that is successful. Whatever, yeah. whatever actually works and wins, you know, certainly hemming and hawing about whether or not this thing is going to eat you while it's trying to eat you is useless, right? Yeah. I like, I like this is a good way to put this too. Uh, so another reason you can't, quote, define a word any way you like, unquote, you can't directly program concepts into someone else's brain. Exactly. The way that you do this, the way that, the way that I've seen this done, is you make up a word. And I, you, you, you define that word very carefully and say, okay, I'm talking about this made up word now. Well, you know what I see? That's the good way of doing it. You know the bad way of doing it that I see a lot today, especially in the political sphere? Uh, you just you make up a word or you use a common word and say that they fit in that word even though they don't? Yes. You take a word that already exists and you hijack it. I think we mentioned this. I can't remember what other podcast it was on. But there are still people, you know, running around with swastikas and flags and, you know, full, full-blown full excited Nazis, right? Yeah. And so and those people are terrible. Yeah, and it, it'd be nice if we had a word that could refer to them. <laughs> it used to be such a nice, succinct word, too. Um, yeah. Uh, but now that it's polluted with, I guess, anyone who to you're the right about, of me. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the fact is, is like, this is one of the things just when it comes to communicating anything in general, you know, I, mm-hmm. I feel like you're understanding what I'm saying. I feel like I'm vaguely understanding what I'm saying. And I feel like mm-hmm. you understand, you know, so I, I can I can kind of play that back, you know, or I can bounce that back and forth. Right. I think I think yeah. I understand your understanding of my understanding of what I said, but I can only be pretty sure. Certainly what I can't do, you know, if we're talking about something, again, important or high stakes or complicated is just count on both of us understanding the word the exact same. Right. Mm-hmm. Can't define a word any way you like. If you there should be a parenthetical to that, if you plan on having a meaningful and productive conversation. <laughs> right. If you don't, then, yeah, go nuts. <laughs> he ends this with when you take into account the way the human mind actually pragmatically works the notion i can define a word any way i like soon becomes i can believe anything i want about a fixed set of objects or i can move any object i want in or out of a fixed membership test this is why arguing that xyz is true by definition is so popular if definition changes behaved like the empirical null ops they're supposed to be no one would bother arguing them but abuse definitions just a little, and they turn into magic wands. In arguments, of course, not in reality. <laughs> this reminds me of that venture that, remember when Stephen Colbert saved the elephant population? <laughs> I do remember that. Thank God someone did. Right. So what he, what he had people do was go to Wikipedia and change the number. You know, he, I think he, he said on, on his show, everyone go to Wikipedia and change the number to whatever, some higher number. I, I, this, I forget the specifics. Yeah. Yeah. But this, you know, he made, he made it true by definition, you know, because Wikipedia is <laughs> basically the 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 dictionary of the world, right? It was great, and I'm glad that we have the ability to do this sort of thing. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> Much easier than trying to actually feed elephants or something. Well, keep them away from poachers. Yeah, all yeah. those dipshits think that just because their tusks are rare that they are valuable. Um, yeah. Well. Hmm. I was about to say, you know, what we could do is make it legal to farm elephants, but eh, it's a whole nother can of worms. I think that actually be really hard. But uh, anyway, what do we do next time? You want to? Are we wrapped up here? We are wrapped up here. For next time, we will be reading the less wrong posts. Bye now, or forever hold your peace. And similarity clusters. Huzzah! Before we go, we have to thank our patron, Anton. You are the person who has helped support our podcast today. Uh, on the Patreon. Anyone else who would like to support us as well can go to the Patreon and help. You brought Brooke here 
today to speak with us and to find out what Vibe Camp is and hopefully to give people a, a desire to go next year because it really is a wonderful um, experience. So thank you for that. And thank you for keeping us going on this show. Yeah, thank you. It's awesome. We appreciate you directly and we appreciate everybody else who listens. And uh, I don't think we've mentioned this in like the last year, but if you do listen to this and you haven't given a review on Apple Podcasts or the other places that take reviews, by all means, oh, yeah. you know, take a second, drop a five star. We'd like that. I assume. Right. I don't know if anyone's actually ever finding us, like stumbling across us on the internet or not, but... Uh, Smash that like button, like and subscribe. That's right. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you guys back in a couple weeks. Cool, bye.